welcome to the Heartbeat for Hire podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Dowd. My goal is to help train leaders and sales organizations how to manage and deliver results with empathy, compassion, and kindness. Let's get started. Greetings and welcome to this episode of Heartbeat for Hire. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we bring some pretty incredible people onto this podcast, and we have a bunch of really spectacular female athletes, and today is no exception. So please welcome Joanna Lohman to the call. Joanna is a leadership coach and a youth sport innovator who elevates performance through authenticity and resilience. She's the author of Raising Tomorrow's Champions and a keynote speaker for leading organizations. She's a former professional soccer player and a member of the women's U.S. national team. It's the first, and she is the first player in Washington spirit history to ever jersey retired. During her 16-year professional career, she built a platform for social impact, which we are going to talk about, and she continues her influence as a performance coach, human rights activist, and sport diplomat. Joanna, welcome! I gotta say, Lindsay, uh, I don't know if this is intentional brilliance or unintentional brilliance of having me on just after the the World Cup final. I know. The timing is good. The timing is good. And and okay, I just, well, let let me just first ask, soccer or football? (laughs) Can I, can I say yes? And I want, I want to say both. It depends on the country that I'm in. If I'm in, if I'm Agreed. in America, I'll say soccer. If I'm in England or around the world, it's football or football. Agreed. So, Agreed. Yeah. I, I kind of take issue that we're the only place on earth that calls it soccer. So we yeah. kind of should get with the times, but yeah. what happens that would put out our football playing friends who, which we've had a few of them on too. So anyway, welcome. I would love Thank it you. if you'd share a little bit about your background, a little bit about your story. I would love to share my story. I uh, was a professional soccer player for 16 plus years, and I played on seven different teams in five different countries. I I love to joke that uh, I could be the most undecorated player to have her jersey retired. Oh, (laughs) no, it's true. My my lowlights exceed my highlights. And that includes being a survivor of, of two failed professional leagues in the United States, I played in three championship games. I lost all of them, Lindsay. Oh. Uh, I tore my ACL, which should have been the best season of my career. Uh, I spent years where I was on the bench more than I was in the field. And you'll enjoy this one the most. I would say on average, I got paid between fifteen to $18,000 a year playing professional soccer. So uh, oh. yeah, you can, you oh. can let, let that one stab you in the heart. Oh. And, then, and then I I came out at the age of 21 after being engaged to a man. I cut off all my hair in 2007, creating what you see now, which is the Joe Hawk. And I wake up every day pushing gender norms, pushing societal boundaries, uh, living as my own walking, talking form of resistance. So, you know, I can, I can dive into any of that even more. Yes, we're going to dive into all of that. Yeah. We're going to dive into all of that. So I think there's a natural, um, and a lot of metaphors and a lot of similarities to sports and business. And obviously when you have a coach, there is some leadership styles. Talk about some of the leadership styles that really worked for you and maybe some of the ones that were really awful. Yeah. This is such an important topic, especially recently, because there have been multiple reports that have come out as of late 
in terms of the, I would say, pervasive abuse and sexual misconduct that has been detailed throughout the National Women's Soccer League, which was the league that I played in. Right. And it's a true highlight of, of poor leadership. And I was on CNN recently discussing what is it like to have an abusive coach and what is the difference between a, a leader or a coach who pushes you very hard and a coach mm. that is abusive. And sadly, I've I've had both. I've had coaches that I felt like inspired me to be better, right? A better version of myself. Mm-hmm. That's what great leadership looks like. Um, people don't go the extra mile for what you care about. People go the extra mile for what they care about, right? So, so a beautiful leader, a beautiful coach will inspire you to go that extra mile because you care deeply about what you do and you care deeply about the team that you are a part of. So it's that connection to the community, right? Connection to your team, the, the connection to what you are doing and your own personal values. And then the essence of development and betterment, right? That's what an incredible coach figures out. And I would say poor leadership an abusive coach is someone who motivates through fear, right? When we motivate through fear, we may get a short-term result, but the long game that we are playing, the long-term result is a true degradation of confidence, a true degradation of self-worth, yeah. a, a deep sense of questioning my, my own intuition. Right. And what was incredible about this report that was released by Sally Q. Yates, the former attorney general, was that she connected the abuse that we silence in the professional levels down to the youth levels that we normalize this type of leadership for our children, for our youth. And so they grow up thinking that being screamed at, yeah, yeah, being torn apart, being abused is Is the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Is the definition of leadership. Have you seen that in your own experience? Yes. And, and that's why, that's why I love when we have athletes on because the easiest um, it's the easiest analogy to show a coach and, a, and performance. And yeah. um, I, it's always been intimidation, belittling, aggression, mm-hmm. fear. Um, all of that demeans your people. Yeah. Um, and it does not inspire them. It does not encourage them to rise up and be their best. And I think we're in this kind of um, awakening right now where we're talking about this and we're really identifying that this isn't soft skills. This Mm -hmm. is actually a tenet of good leadership. And, you know, if you scare your people or, you know, demean them, you're not going to bring out their best. You're just going to chop them down a little bit. So yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I just think it's so shocking what you've gone through. I mean, and I do a lot with, you know, seeking fair wages. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know there was such an incredible fight for, for women's Mm -hmm. soccer to get equal pay. Um, so what was your part in that or your experience? Yeah. So we had an historic year for women's soccer in 2022, they signed, the collective bargaining agreement that promised the U.S. Women's National Team equal pay. And this is unprecedented, Lindsay. Like this has never been done before in history. So, and it also includes FIFA World Cup winning. So let's give an example. So for the U.S. Men's National Team, when they advanced from the group stage to the knockout round, the men's national team made $13 million for advancing. And now that we have equal pay, the women's national team got 6.5 million of that. They got equal to the men 
And that 6.5 million exceeded what the women were paid for winning two World Cups. So they got paid more, the men, for advancing in the men's World Cup than the and women. not winning. Combined, yeah. Yes, combined for winning two full World Cups. So this is absolutely massive. And this is going to have ripple effects in the business world. This is going to have ripple effects for what you're doing and really yeah. advocating, helping women negotiate for equal pay because we can use this as a shining example. This is the lighthouse, right? I mean, it's an easy example. It's easy just example. so, I mean, it's so much harder in business because you don't talk about pay yeah. and, you know, yeah. and people don't know what their peers are making until someone tells them. And then it's yeah. like, what? So, yeah. you know, this is such like a transparent view of the possible and how to make it right. So here's the question. Did they yeah. retro any of the women's soccer yes. teams? Good. Yes. I, I think, don't quote me, but I think it was 26 million, 24 million in back pay. So depending yes. on, I didn't get any of that, but depending on any of like the rosters that you make, the world cup rosters, Olympic rosters, it trickled down to the previous players, because as you know, we stand on the shoulders of the generations that come before us. That's right. So the women's national team dates back to 1985 was the first iteration of the team. And these players were paying, were playing for pennies, Lindsay, like mm -hmm. literally $10 a day. Julie Foudy talks about it. And in the history of the women's national team. So it's, it was so important to recognize all of the women in the suffrage movement, right. For voting, like all these women who stood up in the face of resistance to demand equality. Yeah. yeah. And gave yeah. the current players, the strength, the unity, the mindset to really demand what they are worth. Mm. And this ties into what you asked about, about what, what is great leadership, you know, great leadership, a great foundation is, is one of psychological safety. So now yes. if these players can show up and feel like instead of just trying to survive, they can thrive in their positions. Because when we think about the greatest excellence, we think about greatness, you, you have to be able to show up with a clear mind in a state of flow, right. Yeah. To really achieve that greatness. And if you're worried about how much am I getting paid? Oh, by the way, when I get home from practice, I have to go work at Starbucks because I need to yeah. make extra money. I have to go coach for three hours on the field mm -hmm. and you can't dedicate yourself to your craft, to your profession, to your oh. mind, because you were so worried about survival yeah. and our brain is already wired for survival. So you need these pieces in place, this foundation to really build what we're going to see now is mm -hmm. just this increasing standard in women's soccer, selling out stadiums, ownership by Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle and, yes. and, you know, Natalie Portman, like we're seeing women's soccer totally hit the global stage and we're seeing it trickle down to women in business, female leaders. Like we are, we are at a point where we're tipping, right. And we it. know our value and we will not settle for anything less than it. Well, and it feels like a shift in women's sports altogether. Like mm -hmm. it, to me, I'm seeing it in basketball, I'm seeing yeah. it, you know, I, I really love when my husband, big guy, six foot four sits down and he's like, we're watching women's basketball or watching women's something. He's like, I love yeah. watching this. And I just look at him like, that's so great. I, I mean, yeah. and he's watching it for the sport. He's not watching it for the gender. He's, he's absolutely interested in what they're doing as a team and how they're working and the plays they're, they're yeah. having. I just think it's great. So I, I think that's just so cool. And I just hope it continues. So talk to me a little bit about, we talked a little bit about psychological safety and yeah. 
Um, it's been said, I really believe that this is such an important piece of leadership. And when you can provide that, your people are able to do their best. But there is a camp of people that think psychological safety means you don't have to try as hard and you're right. going to fail it. In. So talk about your feelings on that. Yeah, it's that strikes me that people think it's, you don't have to try as hard. Uh, psychological safety to me is enabling an environment where people can take risks. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually trying harder. You're actually pushing outside of your comfort zone where we experience peak motivation, where we experience growth and you feel safe to push outside your comfort zone because you realize when you fail, because failure is such a huge piece of growth and success, mm -hmm. you will be in a safe space, right? So you aren't worried about showing up as your true self, giving your all, being vulnerable in that space because you're in an environment that supports that risk-taking and the most innovative companies, the most successful companies create this environment where they encourage their employees to take risks, knowing mm -hmm. that's going to come with mistakes. It's going to come with failure. It's going to come with falling on your face. And when we have that challenge, that's when we create the change. I can speak about it in my own life. Like the, the moments that I have really have transformed as an individual are the moments where I've experienced true like failure, right? Yeah. Failure coming yeah. out, like yeah, losing championship games, getting injured. These were the moments that forced me to completely transform my identity because mm -hmm. I was shattered, right? I was shattered. I had to pick up the pieces and reinvent who I was as a human. And I wouldn't be who I am today without being able to take those risks. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have organizations, teams, environments where we encourage those around us to take those risks, then we're just, it's going to be status quo, right? If not, yeah, if if not some some degradation of, of performance because other companies that do have that environment will be innovative, right? Yeah. And they're going to be yeah. progressive and they're going to be cutting edge and we're just going to be falling behind. So you did have some pretty devastating injuries and was where was that in your career that it happened and how did yeah. you come back from it? I would say, so it was 2017 and in 2017, uh, 2016 was the best season of my life. So 2017, I was building on it. I was bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. I was going into the first game of the season really with a vision of the greatest season I've ever had, right? Mm -hmm. Top goal scorer. I was in commercials for the entire league. I was a veteran. I was, I was a rock star yeah. and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the first game of the season in the 11th minute and a ball bounces into midfield and I stretched with my left leg and my knee came down and it just buckles in. And this says a lot about me as a person and my character. I played for six minutes. I continue to play for six minutes on a torn ACL, which is your interior cruciate ligament. Ow. And then it, my knee buckled two more times and they had to basically drag me off of the field because it was... You know, the vision Smart of my done. life was I was going to be one of the best players on the team. And I had worked so hard in my career. I'd survived two failed leagues. Like the league was sustainable. It was, it was yeah. my moment. Right. And when you feel like your moment is, is erased in an instant, it's, it's, you have to mourn the death of who you thought you were going to be. Right. right? That's, that's what rejection represents in our world. That's what failure represents in our world is understanding that it is a piece of rejection and it's being able to accept what your current reality is and 
be able to still move forward with that acceptance of my life is going to be different. And when I look back, I always say, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because like so many of us, I wrapped my identity so tightly around what I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't see myself as a whole human being, mm-hmm. nor did I realize what I contributed to this world outside of kicking a ball. Mm-hmm. And it provided such beautiful, a beautiful way to struggle and to share that oh, struggle. That. Yeah. To, to share that struggle with the world and to incrementally see myself improve and then take my first steps of walking, you know, get through surgery, be able to kick a ball again. And it was very humbling as a professional athlete when people see you as fast, strong, almost invincible to then be starting from scratch. And it gave me the opportunity to really expand my identity. And I went to my first ever pride parade. I was part of a documentary. So it was I was able to see myself for all of the imperfect characteristics and personality traits. And I, you know, it was a huge step in rounding out who I was and being able to take a step past soccer because it was just two years later that I retired. And I felt like a true authenticity deep into my core because I had those tests of my identity and I was able to get through it. I I love, I love so much of what you just said. And I had a similar story. Um, I was living really fast and I was not being grateful. My parents were separating and um, I was being kind of a jerk to my parents and I ended up breaking my hip and it was the only thing that was going to slow me down. And at the time I was angry. I was pissed. I was so mad. I was in the hospital. I had to have massive surgery. Um, And it, it stopped me dead in my tracks. And mm-hmm. I just remember my mom saying these really wretched words to me because I was being awful. Um, she's like, you are just so ungrateful and you're just being unbearable. And I don't even want to be around you. And wow. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. And it completely changed the way I saw the world. It completely changed the yeah. recognizing who I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, and that beautiful struggle that you talked about how long ago was that? Oh God, I was 19. So but you know, four surgeries later, I'm still going. Um, how was so, the relationship with your mother after that? Incredible improvement, yeah. incredible improvement. And I think it really took hearing her say those very harsh words to me, which I needed. It was like a slap yeah. across the face without the slap. Um, I, I, I needed it. And, um, you know, it made me smarten up, but for you, it was different. You know, you had to get in the struggle of it all and see yourself differently. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's some real beauty to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it strikes me and and credit to you that you heard what your mom said, right? So many of us can really ignore or push it aside because we yeah. get really defensive and it hurts, right? Yeah. To hear something like that. Yeah. And when I think of authentic leadership, when I think of who we are as human beings, like we are constantly evolving. And so often okay. I think we, we measure our identity through a conclusion versus our evolution. And that's something that, yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm really working towards now is helping the world see that this is about the transformation of a human, right? This is about 
if I can use a, a word that relates to animals, this is about like molting, right? Like shedding yeah. your skin multiple times throughout our life to become a bigger, better version of who we are. And we can only shed that skin when we feel uncomfortable, right? We have to have that catalyst. I love that you said that because so many people will talk to me about, oh my gosh, you know, I was a terrible, terrible leader. And people ask all the time, Lindsay, do you think people can change? Do you think they can grow? And yeah. I say yes, because I've met so many leaders who were like, I was an asshole. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, I have recognized the kind of leader I was then is not who I want to be now. And yeah. my team respects me and I have friendships now and they would stick their neck out for me. And it's because they're authentic and it's because yeah. they're coming in with kindness and praise. And I just think um, it's just the human form is not you know, set in stone when you're yeah. born, like you, you, yeah. you're capable of so much change. So talk a little bit about coming out and what that, I mean, that was talk about a molting, right? That was yeah. a, a, a bold so, move. I mean, when did you know? And, and what was the timing like? Yeah. Share a little bit about that. Yeah. I, I, I shed my skin completely in, in that situation. I was a senior in college and I was engaged to a really nice young man. And what's interesting is if you see pictures of me as a kid, you would, you would probably shake me and be like, Joe, like you're very gay. Like, look at, look at your haircut. Look at, look at what you're wearing. Look at what you're doing. And this is not to like generalize, right? You can't, no, no, no. you can't paint a picture of, of a lesbian and you keep, not everyone fits into a, a certain no. box, but there definitely were signals, I think. But what's interesting is that you can't be something that you don't see. And I didn't have any role I say models. It all the time. Yes. I love that. And it wasn't part of my language. It wasn't something that I discussed. And I have the most amazing parents and I grew up in the most incredible neighborhood, but it's still, it wasn't something that was discussed because it wasn't, it wasn't prevalent, right? It, it wasn't relevant at that time. So I grew up thinking that my only options for identity were when it came to gender, it was on the binary, either I was a boy or a girl. And clearly mm. I, I was a girl when really I sat like smack dab in the middle, I was a huge tomboy. Mm. And then when it came to sexual orientation, I had one option and that was straight. So check, check, right? Like I went through That's my life. Yeah. yeah. Staying in those lanes, not really questioning it. And it wasn't until I was in college when a teammate of mine, I was attracted to her. She was attracted to me that I was like, Oh, this, this is a, this What's is a way happening. Yeah. 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 And at this point, many boyfriends later, right. I was doing what any traditional straight cis woman would do. I, I was dating men and I had found a, a great guy who asked me to marry him. And, and when he asked me, Lindsay, I, I swear I, I blacked out <laughs> and I got home and my older sister was like, Joe, are you okay? Because I was crying, but like crying in a way that was more pain than joy. Oh, no. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And <laughs> I'm fine. Not okay. So, and then my mom, bless her, like took me to go wedding dress shopping. And I just like broke down in tears. I, I, I really wasn't ready to do this. And she was like, yeah. okay, sweetheart, like let's just, let's just wait. This isn't, this isn't right in this moment. And so the signals again were, were showing up and I was around this, this woman, my teammate, you know, multi, you know, every day of, of college. And it got to the point where 
the attraction was just overwhelming. And I remember, you know, my first experience with her at, I always joke that I got hit by the gay stick. It was just like, boom, you know, it, it was an immediate, like, wow, like this, this is who I'm meant to be. Mm. And this is how it's supposed to feel. So it was almost like a, a true epiphany an overnight revelation in my life. And, you know, not to say it was easy then after, um, you never stop coming out. Right. So you slowly tell the people you feel safe around, but you know, now the way that I show up in the world, it, it seems quite obvious to most that I'm a walking, you know, talking to lesbian, as I like to say, but <laughs> you know, when I travel overseas again, when, when we talk about people don't have the language for it, you know, I, I, four years in a row, I went to Africa, I worked for the state department. And when I land in these countries, nobody knows that I'm gay. And I don't speak about it because it's very often illegal. So mm. people ask me, do I have kids? Do I have a husband? And I just, I say no. And I smile and I realize I, you know, I'm there. I, I do my work. Um, I am joyous. I am full on Joe Loman. And then when I get home, they follow me on Facebook potentially. And then they see like, Oh, wow. Like I just met a lesbian. I just met someone who was gay and mm. Maybe I'm opening their mind and their world to how a woman can show up in the world that's different than what they expected. Well, I so, mean, look at the awareness or the lack of awareness that you had and then yeah. the awakening that you went through. And I just thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, um, it's, it's a great story. Um, talk a little bit about your book. Yeah. My book, Raising Tomorrow's Champions. So clearly uh, I'm very passionate about being part of the women's national team. It is a very exclusive group. Um, since their first iteration in 1985, there's only been about 250 women who have ever played for the United States women's national team. So it is a very elite group of women where I feel like we can learn um, incredible lessons from what they went through. So it's, it's a parenting and life lessons book from the greatest women soccer players of all time. Yeah. And the beauty of it is it's, it's not a book that necessarily says you must be great at something and this is how you do it. There's, there's a lot of nuance and it's, it's like a well-woven qu uh, quilt of stories, of science, of trying to help parents guide kids to whatever path that they want to achieve, like whatever path they want to be on for their own version of greatness. How do we show up as parents? because so very often we parent, we lead through fear and that yeah. fear shows up from our own trauma and experiences. That fear shows up of pass on protection. Yeah. yeah. And I want to protect my kids so badly that I, I want to snow plow all their problems and rejections and I would say adversity out of the way. So it's, it's a really like digestible book in terms of the lessons that we teach. And it's, Mm -hmm. almost chronological timeline of what a youth athlete would go through in their rise through sports. So it talks about leadership and you get to hear from Abby Wambach. It talks about gender and race and sexual orientation. You get to hear from Mia Hamm about what was it like to be one of the, you know, the first female athletes of Nike. You get to hear from Brian Ascuri about what it felt like to be one of the few players of color on the women's national team. And so it's, it's really powerful in that sense where you get to hear firsthand experiences from the players who went through it. 
and it's you know looking back on their own childhood and their own life of of the keys that help them get to where they are now so sounds amazing i can't wait yeah the pictures are from the players themselves and it's all color it's really beautiful so it is it is a fun read for any parent it's a fun read for anyone who's a fan of the women's national team and it's just it's it's an easy book to just pick up pick up and be like you know what i want to read about adversity i want to read about uh leadership I read about yeah. injuries right and you can really get some solid nuggets and learning in it i bet yeah. that's amazing i mean it sounds like a whole lot of resilience in there too which yeah, is absolutely the, the stories that everyone loves and you know, I talk a lot about resilience because, you know, just like we were saying with leadership, you know, can you change? Can you grow? Absolutely, you can. And I think yeah. resilience plays a really big part in that. Um, so tell everybody, what is a sport diplomat? A sport diplomat is someone who travels the world using sport as a vehicle for social change. So oh. it's, oh, I didn't really know it existed until I fell into it. And I, and I, Every time I get back from a trip and it's very intense, it's long days, incredibly yeah. hard work. And I consistently think like, I can't believe this is my life. I can't believe that, first of all, I became a professional athlete because it didn't exist when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And now I get to use this position to change lives around the world. So, you know, to give a simple example, the last trip I went on was to Nigeria and we combine sport with a vehicle of social change. So in Nigeria, we, talk, we talked about human trafficking. Hmm. So we have a sport portion, and then we have local leaders, delegates, NGOs, nonprofits, organizations that teach the young women, what is it, what is human trafficking? Um, we had a speaker that came that uh, was a survivor of human trafficking. So someone from their community, because as a, a white woman, you know, parachuting yeah. into Nigeria, I'm, I'm very aware that I can only, you know, go so it's far so in yeah. terms of my impact, right? And yeah. that's not my place. So we're there to really coach the soccer portion, to inspire these young women and to show a different version of, of what a woman can be. And then we implement the more local powerful social change aspects through meetings and informational um, conversations. So I learn I learned so much. I learned so much about myself. I learned I gained so much perspective on what it's like to be a woman in America, how much privilege I possess right. as right. a woman in America with the color of my skin and the family I was born into. So it's it is, you know, it's it's life learning um that you can't get from a book right no well so, travel alone is such an incredible teacher but yeah. to be in that forum talking about so much social change is it's so moving and um it's so it's impossible to not be inspired it really yeah. i mean it's incredible stuff is it organized by like a presidential administration or how who like who gives you the social diplomat title it's that's a great question so the state department the U.S. Department of State has a section called sports diplomacy. And so it's a whole group of individuals that are working together to bring different programs to countries that, that need it. And then also mm -hmm. bringing foreign athletes, foreign coaches, leaders over to America to also experience programs 
So who gives you the title of sports diplomat? Is that an administration or part of the government? <laughs> I have a tiara. No, I'm <laughs> the uh, U.S. Department of State has a specific group that works to run programs in countries that need it and also bring, um, I would say, leaders, coaches, local dignitaries over to the United States to get to learn from coaches and leaders here in the U.S. And it works with every single sport. So skateboarding, snowboarding, right? Soccer, basketball, baseball, whatever sport they feel like is really going to resonate with that local community, they will create a program that is very locally led, right? Which is super important because people support what they help to build. So it's locally led, it's locally organized. And then they bring in little um, celesbians like Joe Lohman to help run the athletic portion, knowing that we're working with local organizations and NGOs and nonprofits to, um, I would say, support and really uplift their social programming for the, the athletes or just the individuals we get to work with. That's amazing. I didn't know that that program existed. I think that is so cool and so inspiring yet again. I mean, there's so much inspiration around you. I love it. Okay. So tell me what inspires you. Such a good question. What inspires me? So I will tell you something very personal that's going to happen in my life. My wife is pregnant and (gasps) literally any day now she will be having our first child. So What inspires me is being able to see uh, this new, beautiful human um, be invited into the world and to have such a heavy influence and impact on um, seeing her grow into a self-actualized, confident young woman. So I'm, I'm inspired that I am, like I posted on LinkedIn today, I'm the gatekeeper of her joy. So how can I lead her through life in a way that she realizes and understands that she is enough and she's incredible. So that's what inspires me. She's lucky to have you as a mama. That's, that's awesome. Um, Lucky to have you also, you know, as a a badass female leader out here in the world. So thank you for the inspiration and, and the, the aspiration that you create for so many. Oh, I'm trying, girl. We got to change. We got to change the tide and it's it's yes. happening. It's it's just slow. Um, and what would you like your legacy to be? I would like to leave this world and anyone who's come in contact with me to feel more comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. I I want people to understand that when we show up as our authentic selves, we are most beautiful, um, high performing happiest versions of ourselves. And I want to be a catalyst. I want to be a light that brings that out of people. So anyone that has crossed my path, I hope they feel more comfortable and inspired in their own skin after they have spoken or or interacted with me. Well, mission accomplished, my friend. (laughs) I'm feeling it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and all its effects. So you are totally living that life. And I am so, so grateful for it. How can people find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. So just Joanna Loman, um, always sharing what I'm passionate about and what lights the fire in my eyes. And then they can find me on Instagram, um, Joanna Loman 15. And my website is just, uh, joannaloman.com and they can find my book on Amazon, um, yeah, please reach out. I love 
I love conversations. I love what we have, this interaction. I think it makes the world a better place. So yeah. And we met through LinkedIn. Like we we found each other on LinkedIn. I don't remember who posted what, but it doesn't matter. I'm so thrilled that you were here. Thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest and uh, guys go follow Joe. She's got so much to share. So thanks for tuning in to this this platform, Lindsay. Oh my God. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Heartbeat for Hire, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat for Hire. If you like what you hear, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave a five-star review. To keep the conversation going, you can find me on Insta or at LinkedIn at Lindsay Dowd, H4H. Or you can reach me at my website, heartbeatforhire.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.